Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. And if you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it to the book of Romans and chapter number 14. If you don't have your own copy, an electronic or printed one, then you could grab one from under the chair in front of you and take that copy and turn to page 127, and you would find yourself located in Romans chapter 14. We've been involved in a series of messages that we have entitled, Walk in Love. And all this began really back in chapter 13. And we are reminded by the Lord himself, who is the co-author of this book, in chapter 13 and verse 8, that we are to love one another. And then in, in chapter 13 and verse 9, he tells us we're to love our neighbor as ourself. And then in verse 10 of chapter 13, he tells us that love is the fulfillment of the law. All of that reminds me of what Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35. He said this, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we're talking about walking in love. At times, I think there can be a lot of discussion about love, and we're really not sure what really is love. Sometimes it's a little more of an intangible thing, maybe an airy, kind of lofty idea, maybe a little squishy. If we're going to love one another, we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, and we know that love is the fulfillment of the law, and it is the evidence by which all men will know that we are Jesus' disciples if we have love for one another. What really is love? So what we're going to do this morning is we have one of those microphones and we're going to go around and we're going to ask everybody to give us a definition of love, a biblical definition of love. So are you, no, we're really not going to do that. Some of you are going, whew, I thought maybe he was going to do that for just a moment. No, listen, I've done, done you a favor. What I have done is I put together a biblical definition of love. We're talking about walking in love. What is love? And here's a biblical definition. Love is a commitment of my will to your needs and best interest, regardless of the cost. When we talk about walking in love, loving one another, that's what we're talking about. Love is a commitment of my will to your needs and best interest, regardless of the cost. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to look at that definition for a moment. And then I want you to reflect on Jesus in what Jesus did for us. Love is a commitment of my will. That's what Jesus said and did for us. To your needs and best interests, not looking out for his own, but for ours, regardless of the cost. And he paid the ultimate price, well beyond anything we could imagine. You see how that's the biblical definition of love? A commitment of my will to your needs and best interests, regardless of the cost. Now, I want you to to look again at that definition, and I want you to think about this. How do I relate to other believers in Jesus Christ? How do I function when it comes to relating to other believers in Jesus Christ? Loving one another means that love is a commitment of my will 
to your needs and best interests, regardless of the cost. The title I've given to the message today is Love Allows for Differences. And we're going to be looking at chapter 14 in the first 12 verses. I'd like to read them and invite you to follow along as I read. Paul writes to the believers at Rome and says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does it for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give account of himself to God. Now, we have a plan as we approach these 12 verses today, and it has four parts to it. First of all, we're going to look at the issue. What is really the issue that he is addressing here? And then we're going to look at two types of believers, two common attitudes, and then two key principles. So that's where we're headed. We're going to look at the issue, two types of believers in the community of believers, two types of common attitudes, and then two key principles. So let's begin by unpacking what the issue was. And the issue was this. In the Christian community, there were differences that relate to what I like to call gray areas of the Christian life. Now, when I talk about gray areas of the Christian life, I'm not saying that truth is relative. Truth is just whatever you think it is. I'm not saying that. You know, the Bible is black and white about many things. It is black and white about the nature of salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith. The Bible's black and white about the design of marriage. It's a man and a woman for a lifetime. The Bible's black and white about how sex was designed for only functioning inside of marriage. The Bible's black and white about stealing. It's black and white about lying. It's black and white about abusive speech. It's black and white about the importance of assembling together as believers in Jesus Christ. See, there's safety in the herd, being with the herd. When we get way out there on the fringes, that the enemy might be able to pick us off. 
Bible's black and white about many things. But he's talking about differences in gray areas of the Christian life. When we're talking about gray areas, we're not talking about essential doctrines. We're talking about lifestyle choices that I must make and you must make in living your Christian life. Areas that are not directly addressed by Scripture. Now, as Paul wrote this to the believers in Rome, he gives us two illustrations of what some of those gray areas were. They involve diet and days. He mentions the diet differences in verse 2. He says there's one person who has faith that he may eat all things. We might call those folks the church carnivores. You can eat everything. But also there were people who said that you can only eat vegetables. Only eat vegetables. Those would be, of course, the church vegetarians, right? But here was the idea attached to that. They attach spirituality to those things. You know, it was more spiritual to eat all things, to be a church carnivore. Or it was more spiritual to eat veggies only and be a church vegetarian. So one of, this, one of these issues that he surfaces from Rome had to do with diet. Another one had to do with days. That's in verse 5. He said there's one person who regards one day above another. In other words, there's some people in the body who would say that some days are more holy, some days are more special than other days. Probably, we don't know for sure, but probably these were Jewish background followers of Christ, you know, who'd grown up with the practice of keeping the Sabbath, which was Saturday, and had grown up around celebrating the Jewish feast days, and they likely um, saw themselves as a fully fulfilled Jew now, and so they said some days are more special than other days. So you had someone saying that, but also he goes on to say there in verse 5, there are others who regard every day alike. In other words, they would say, no, every day is the Lord's day. Every day is the Lord's day. There's no really special days at all. In both cases, they were attaching a view of spirituality to those views. If you view a certain day of the year as very special, that's just more spiritual. Or every day is alike, it's all the Lord's. That's more spiritual. Now, that was what was going on at Rome. Today, we can actually be wrestling with the same kinds of things. Like even among the Christians, the issue of diet. Ever run into anybody who would try to communicate to you that they felt like a certain diet was more spiritual than another? If you were to do this diet, you would really be a little more spiritual than you are. Even the area of days still becomes an issue. Some people would say this, listen, Sunday is a special day. It is a special day. It requires special behavior on Sunday. You have to behave in a special way on Sunday. And other people would say, no, no, they're, they're all alike. Every day is special with Jesus Christ. Every day is the Lord's day. See, we can have some of the same gray area issues that they had. But we have our own gray areas in our era of life where there are no clear scriptural statements made. For example, should a spiritual believer go to the movies and if so, what rating should be allowed? Where do you turn in the Bible for the answer for that? How about should a spiritual believer drink an alcoholic beverage? Where do you look in the Bible about that? 
What about, what's, what's spiritual? When you have kids, do you send them to Christian school? Do you homeschool them? Or do you send them to public school? What's a spiritual Christian to do? What type of car should a spiritual Christian drive? Should it be a more economical car, or could it be a little bit more of a luxurious car? Should a spiritual Christian subscribe to HBO? Where do you go in the Bible for the answer to that? What about worship style of music? Where does the Bible talk about which style is the spiritual style? What about birth control, yay or nay? Should a, a Christian practice birth control or not? How are you supposed to dress on Sunday? Where's the chapter in the Bible about that? Is a spiritual Christian, uh, can he, he or she get a piercing on their body? Can a spiritual Christian color their hair? And if they do, should it only be natural coloring? Or can they have streaks of, of red and blue in their hair? What is a spiritual Christian? By the way, for those of you, there have been some people who know me well enough, they're comfortable enough, they've actually asked me, Bruce, do you color your hair? And if you've been wondering, the answer is, no, I don't. What's a spiritual Christian do? Can a spiritual Christian smoke a cigar? So a spiritual Christian, can they get a tattoo? What translation of the Bible should they get? See, all these things are gray areas. The Bible doesn't directly address them. Love allows for differences in gray areas of the Christian life. Areas where the scripture does not directly address it. That is the issue we have before us. Now, I, I want you to see that there also are two types of believers, and maybe you'll recognize yourself as one type or the other. The first type of believer that he talks about in chapter 14 would be one who is weak in faith. He mentions that in verse 1, except the one who's weak in faith. The latter part of verse 2, he talks about one who is weak eats vegetables only. Now, it's important to understand this is not a demeaning term he's using here. When he says weak, he's referring to an individual who has a restricted sense of liberty. They are weaker in terms of how far their freedom of choice extends in their Christian life. So you have someone who is weak in faith, and then you also have another type of believer who would be described as strong, strong, we would say, in faith, and that term actually gets used in chapter 15 and verse 1. Someone who is strong has a broad sense of liberty. You know, they might say, hey, if Scripture doesn't clearly restrict it, go for it. It's fully allowable. So you have these two types of believers in the Christian community as it relates to these gray areas of the Christian life. Now, those two types of believers foster two common attitudes, and I want to look at those for a moment. The first common attitude involves what I'm calling the participator towards the abstainer. In other words, the participator is someone who has a broad view of liberty and the abstainer was one who has a more restricted view of liberty. Notice he says in verse 3, the one who eats, who has the broad view of liberty, the participator, is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, the one who has the more restricted liberty. See, see this, this attitude 
looks at the more restricted person and says something like this in their mind. You know, you don't go to movies. You don't drink an alcoholic beverage. You don't even believe in birth control. You don't color your hair. You don't eat everything. You'd never get a tattoo. And I noticed that you would only send your kids to Christian school. What he's saying is this, that the one who has broad liberty, as they look towards the one who has restricted liberty, is to, as it says in verse 3, not to regard them with contempt. Uh, It's a verb that means to look down on them, to disdain them, to give scorn towards the one who has the narrower view. The one who takes this attitude, the one with broad liberty towards the restricted liberty person, tends to be condescending towards them. You're just too strict. You're too narrow in your view. And the implication, of course, is I'm spiritually superior to you. So that's the first common attitude. Second one involves the abstainer towards the participator. In other words, the one who has more restricted view of liberty towards the one who has a broad view of liberty, and that's addressed in the second part of verse 3. The one who does not eat, more restricted view, is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. This person who has a more restricted liberty, as they look at the person who has a broader view of liberty, tends to have this attitude that goes something like this as they look at that other person. Well, you know what? You do go to movies, and I I notice you go to movies that are beyond PG. I've been observing you do drink alcoholic beverages. You do drive an expensive car. You do have an unconventional haircut. You eat red meat. And I've also noticed that you believe it's okay to send your kids to public school. And the more I look, I've noticed that not only that, but you have a tattoo, and you smoke cigars. I can't believe you would do something like that. So what does he say about the one who has a more restricted view of liberty towards the one who has a broader view of liberty? He says in verse 3, you're not to judge that person. It means we're not to be critical of them. We're not to write them off as unspiritual. Someone who takes this attitude is condemning towards the other person. You're just too liberal. You're out of line. And, of course, the implication is, I'm more spiritual than you. In both cases and in both attitudes, I think the principle that Paul lays out in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, not verse 13, verse 3, is very applicable. Paul says there to the believers, I say to everyone among you, that includes everyone among us, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. You know that one of the byproducts of love is unity? we got a lot of differences, but one of the byproducts of love is unity. You know there is love when there is unity. Listen to what it says in Psalm 133, verses 1 and 3. How good and how pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. For there the Lord bestows his blessing. That's a rather amazing thing to say. 
how good, how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity despite the differences. For there the Lord bestows his blessing. Now, just a reminder, when we talk about unity, we're not talking about uniformity, that we're all going to be exactly alike. I mean, listen, look, look around. We, we have different personalities. We have different backgrounds. We have different preferences, right? And yet we're called to worship together. We're called to connect together. We're called to serve together. We're called to love one another. Love allows for differences. And rather than being condescending towards those who make different choices, and rather than being condemning towards those who make different choices, he tells us here that we are to accept one another. He mentions that right there, first part of verse 14. We are to accept one another. By the way, this is a command. This is not an optional thing. You kind of sometimes get around to thinking about accept. No. This word means to welcome somebody to receive someone. And we are to accept and welcome and receive one another because, verse 3, it says that God has accepted them, same verb. God has welcomed them into the family. And so we are to allow for differences. We're to welcome and receive one another. doesn't mean we're going to necessarily agree, but we are to accept one another without challenging one another's convictions. We're to accept one another without demanding that you think like me. Now, I want to remind you again what we're talking about here. We're talking about gray areas, areas that the Scripture does not clearly address. We're not talking about ignoring sin. We're not talking about compromising truth. We're talking about the areas and the choices we need to make about areas that Scripture does not directly address. Now, that leads us to two key principles. And as we look at these two key principles, I just want you to lean in with me a little bit, okay? This has to do with how we respond to this truth. What are we to be doing? First key principle is love develops its own convictions. Love develops its own convictions. We see that in the second part of verse 5 when he says, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Again, I will say, this is an imperative. This is a command. This isn't an optional thing. Each one of us, when it comes to these areas that are gray, that the Bible doesn't directly address, each one of us is to develop our own convictions. And what does that mean we have to do? It means we may have to do some studying. We may have to do some praying. We may need to utilize some principles that we see in the New Testament as we make decisions about, well, what movie should I go to? What kind of school should I send my kids to? Are some days more special than other days? Uh, should I get a piercing or a tattoo? Uh, should I take an alcoholic drink? What type of car should I buy? Love develops its own convictions. So it's a good thing. I like it when people have a conviction. But we're not to then try to export that conviction to other people. We're not try to, to try to take and impose that conviction on somebody else. We're not to try to control them with our conviction or coerce them with our conviction. And this actually happens in the church, and it's happened here at Wildwood even. There was a number of years ago where we had 
a, a pretty large group of individuals who developed a very strong conviction about school choice. They had decided there was one particular school choice that was the right and spiritual thing to do. And yet, a period of time came when they began to say about that particular conviction, you know what, we would sort of like the leaders of Wildwood to embrace this choice. I mean, after all, it's the only choice that you can make that's the right choice. And so, there was pressure put upon us to just endorse that as really the church's official position. And I I can tell you how, how we handled that. I told them, no way. We're not doing that. We are not going to do that. We're going to allow people the freedom to come to their own conviction. And by the way, if you wonder what the Hess family did over the years as we raised our four children, we did some of all three of those different ways to choose from and how you want to see your kids educated. Love develops its own convictions. Second, key principle, love lets God be God. We see that there in in verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Who are you to judge the servant of another? You know, as you look around this room and you look around this body of believers here, The believers that are all around you, the believers that are all around us, we're just different, right? But we're still his children. He made them, he redeemed them, and he cares for them. To their own master, he will stand or fall. Think about how out of place it would be for, if you have a business, for me to show up there and say, you know, I'm going to do a performance review on your employees. Like, Brian, if I came over to your business and you were having a business meeting and I suddenly showed up and I said, hey, I'm here, I'm going to evaluate all your employees. You know, you'd be going, what are you doing here? You know, this isn't your jurisdiction. This is mine. I'm the boss of this group. What are you doing trying to evaluate my employees? You would say, Bruce, that's not your place, right? Well, It's the same principle as we look around to one another. It's not my place to judge some servant who has another master whose name is Jesus Christ. Love lets God be God. Look at verse 6. It says there, He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. He doesn't eat. For the Lord he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. In other words, what he's saying is no matter what you may be, all of you really have the same focus, and that is you're trying to make choices in your Christian life to please the Lord. And then in verses 7 and 8, he says, For not one of us lives for himself, not one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. In other words, Our goal in life as followers of Christ is to honor Christ. Our goal even after life is going to be to honor Christ. Love lets God be God. And there's a reason for that. Have you noticed that that I'm not omniscient? 
may be a shock to a couple people. I don't know. You know, I'm not omniscient. I'm not objective. I don't have all the facts. I don't have all the information. I mean, who am I to judge the servant of another? You know, in 1988, we bought a house here in Norman. When we bought that house, we actually had some people in our body said, you shouldn't have bought that house. That was a wrong thing for you to do. And they said it was wrong. They were convinced it was wrong. They told me it was wrong. Despite the fact that it was an incredible answer to prayer, you know, there was another offer turned down at the same time that was $34,000 more than ours. Now, you explain that to me. I, to this day, still can't explain that. It was an incredible answer to prayer, and we bought that house at the lowest square foot cost of any house that had been sold in the neighborhood for the five years previous, previous to that and for every year since then. You want to know who owns the lowest cost per square foot house in that neighborhood? It happens to be us. That was a God thing. I had people telling me, well, well no, 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 no. You shouldn't buy that house. Not really their jurisdiction. He reminds us of something very important in chapter 14, uh, the last part of verse 10 to, to verse 12. He says there, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 12. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, sometimes when you, when you read that as a believer and a follower of Christ, you're going, what? I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of God? I thought Jesus took all the judgment. I thought he took all of that. Well, it's important to understand here, this little phrase that's translated judgment seat is really one small word in the original language. It's the word bema, B-E-M-A, bema. And uh, I've seen a bema. Bema was a raised platform. And in the Greek world, particularly like, for example, in Corinth, when you had the Isthmian Athletic Games, what would happen is there would be individuals on the bema who would award prizes to those who had competed in the athletic games. When we're talking about the judgment seat of God, the issue is not eternal destiny. The Lord Jesus took all the guilt. He took all the wrath for all time. The issue here with the judgment seat of Christ is not going to be eternal destiny. We could translate this. We're all going to stand before the evaluation seat of God. Or we could translate it, the reward seat of God. But what's important to note in verse 12 is that little phrase, each one, that's an emphatic position. Nobody gets out of this evaluation. Each one of us is going to have to stand there. We're all going to be evaluated by the Savior. There will come a day in which I must answer for my own life choices before Christ. There'll come a day when you will answer for your own life choices, particularly as it relates to this whole area, this whole gray area, and some others. And one thing that's not going to happen at the Bema, Jesus is not going to say to me, what do you think about everybody else's choices? What do you think about Brian's choices in his life? He's not going to say that. This is between me and the Lord. And love allows for differences. Love develops its own convictions. 
And love lets God be God. You know, men and women, so much of this, in my opinion, involves where our eyes are focused. That's part of what gets us in trouble. Our eyes are focused in the wrong location. You remember at the end of the Gospel of John in chapter number 21, the Lord Jesus is talking to Peter, and he's talking about to Peter about some of his obligations and some of the things that are going to happen to him. Remember this story? Remember this account? And as the Lord Jesus is talking to Peter, Peter sees John. And he says, well, Lord, what about him? What about him? Do you remember how Jesus responded to that? Jesus said to Peter, what is that to you? You follow me. And men and women, we start looking around at some of the choices in gray areas that other believers make. That's exactly what Jesus' attitude is. What is that to you? That's my jurisdiction. You follow me. And so when we're wrestling with these differences, these differing choices that we need to make, the gray areas that the Bible doesn't directly, clearly address, my focus and your focus, Jesus says, is you follow me. You follow me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the word of God and and how practical and real it is. We need to see it. We need to know it. And we would pray, Father, that when it comes to all of these areas, that you would just deliver us from being condescending and condemning towards people who make different choices. And may we keep our eyes riveted where they need to be directly on you so that my commitment to you is to follow Jesus. And we know that when that happens, an atmosphere of unity will spring up. We're grateful for Christ and all he is to us. And we pray in his name. Amen. 